Hello, I'm Stuart Astill. Welcome to another Strategy and Evidence podcast from BrainCaffeine.net. In this episode, we're going into the subject of value propositions in businesses. But if you work for any organisation that's trying to balance the value of what you do across multiple factors, you'll find this topic is really relevant. I've got on the podcast Jack Habel, who I first met working with Simply Get Results, a company you should hear about whether you think HR data is boring, you're wrong, or fascinating. Yep, you're right. Anyway, that's where we met. Jack is a freelance strategy consultant based in London who works with tech startups, as well as working with Simply Get Results, who he describes as the masters of people analytics. He also works with ProFinder, the world's leading workforce optimization software house, MeBeBot, an AI chatbot company, and James and James, innovative e-commerce tech, and the list goes on. When I first met Jack, he was completing his MBA with Warwick Business School. Birdie looks like he'll never let learning go. Uh, Not that long ago, we ended up chatting about a topic that I knew very little about, value propositions. So I invited him to come along and talk to me on the podcast. Let's get online. Hello, Jack. It's good to uh, be talking to you. And obviously, the first thing that I want you to tell me is for people that don't know anything about it, or even those people that might know a little bit and want to know your angle on it, what is a value proposition? Hi, Stuart. Thanks for having me on. A value proposition is the bundle of products or services that provide value to the customer. A good value proposition tends to communicate the differentiators and unique value that a product or service can offer. And really, a value proposition sits at the heart of a business's strategy because what it does is it encapsulates the fit between the firm, the customer, and the product. I think you've summed up there why it was that I was interested in talking to you because it seems to me that for each of those things, there's quite a lot of evidence that's needed in one direction or another. And I think, you know, I'm definitely interested in how people are going to draw that evidence together. And I think it's also pretty clear why any business would want to do this but you know it's it's not easy and I also think that it's pretty clear why you'd want to do it well. Absolutely so I think one example that we could all relate to would be uh, Uber so when Uber came up with their original value proposition you know when we contrast it with a black cab um, what value does Uber provide? It's it's flexible it's convenient. It decided to focus on those types of value. Um, but it also decided it didn't need to provide other types of value. Uh, the driver doesn't have the knowledge that a black cab driver has. Um, the car isn't necessarily a luxury car. Um, and if you look at Uber's early slogans and expressions of their value proposition, it was things like tap a button, get a ride. You know, it's a really simple expression of the value that they provide to you. I think it then changed to tap the app, get a ride. But a really good value position tends to be able to be expressed concisely because it's a compelling way of explaining to a customer what value you're providing them and in turn, what value you're not providing them. So I guess when you're a startup, then you're doing that organically, but businesses that um, already exist can can produce something even though they've they've got a lot of their offer out there already this is something that you can engineer from what you already know absolutely and you know if you look at any big business they they have subsidiaries they they use M&As they make acquisitions they decide which geographies and industries and segments to to move into and looking at the fit between the firm the product and the customer is an excellent way to decide 
to inform how to make those decisions. The trouble with value proposition is it's a has previously been a slightly woolly term. Um, it doesn't directly fall into marketing. It doesn't directly fall into strategy. It doesn't directly fall into business modeling. So there hasn't been a huge amount of academic research done on it. Now, in the last five years or so, more research has started coming out and it's been more widely accepted that the value proposition does sit at the heart of the business model. And, you know, we do need to build out an evidence base and really work out how we can better use the concept to provide value. And I think that's why it's interesting, yeah, because to me it pulls evidence in from so many different places. So, you know, you say you've got the you've got to know about your own business and you've got to know how that's running and what it's capable of doing, the capabilities of your business. You've got to know quite yeah. a lot about your existing product and the capabilities. And then uh, I think this idea of the evidence about what is feasible for you as a business, because this is very much about sort of positioning the future of your business and, and sort of the silly, you know, to trivialise the point, if you're a fintech company, you don't want to be spotting an opening for supplying tinned anchovies. This has got to be very much based on the heart of what your company is is there to achieve. And I think that I think the reason I'm interested in it, it ties in all this external evidence, but also it relies on companies having a a really good look at themselves. So a couple of the main proponents of some of the work around value propositions are Christensen, Tony Olwick, who've been providing some clearer frameworks on how a value proposition should be formulated. And like I said, they, they tend to look at the market needs and the mm. customer problems and work from that side. But they also then bring in competitors, and what products are already on the market and map those out as well. And it's really about understanding where the firm can sort of sit within that macro environment. That, that that fit between the product, the customer, the firm, and how that relates to the competitive space, it really does require a lot of different sources of evidence to do it in any kind of meaningful way. I think the thing, the other thing that interests me about it's not just about gathering the evidence together, it's about understanding how to tie those different streams of evidence into, into one thing. You've got this uh, four-quadrant model that you sent me the reference for. So do you want to, are you able to just give me a little sort of run through what these four quadrants are? Because I think the distinction between where people are able to go with setting up this value proposition is, is really distinct when you look at those four quadrants and, and the different mindset, I think, that that implies. Essentially, Olwick argues that there are two axes. One of them is, do you get the job done better or do you get it done worse than your competitors? Well, that sounds weird, Jack. Sorry. So you're suggesting that some people might want to do a job worse than than somebody else? Absolutely, because uh, some could argue that me buying a tennis racket for two quid when a nice, proper, professional tennis racket costs 50 quid, well, the tennis racket that cost me two quid, whoever's produced it has done the, done the job worse. But they may have appealed to me, who doesn't play tennis and wants to pick one up quickly to go and have a game. Naturally, we all wish and hope that we could get the job done better. But I think what the value proposition really about is understanding which elements of it do our particular set of customers want us to do better and which elements can we actually do worse. But let me just keep going. So the you've got one axis, which is getting the job done better or worse. And the other axis is do you charge more or less? If you want to do the job better and charge more money for it, you're a differentiated strategy. Mm-hmm. Um, you're trying to target people who aren't happy with what's out there at the moment and want something better, and they're willing to pay more money for it. 
moving down from that, if you want to charge more, but you're actually providing a worse product, that's called a discrete strategy. And that's quite rare, but there are sometimes occasions where certain sets of customers with limited options would be willing to pay more for a product in certain circumstances. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles on it. Now, the other two, you can go for a disruptive strategy. This is one that is very popular in our day and age. And that's about doing the job technically worse, but charging less. Okay, so often it's about mass market and it's about taking something that may be an expensive or luxury product, working out which bits of value people really want from it, creating a cheaper, more accessible version. Then in the top right, you've got the dominant strategy, which everyone would love, which is to do the job better and charge less. And if you're able to do that, you know, you're really going to corner a huge part of the market. And that sounds like classic innovation. Absolutely, yeah. So generally, a bit of incremental innovation can help you to differentiate and Mm, charge a little bit more to your customers by having some extra features. And I think a little bit of incremental innovation can also help you to disrupt, possibly to charge less by finding a cheaper way of doing things, often using technology to do things in new ways. But to be truly dominant, to provide a better product at a cheaper price, you know, that does tend to involve quite a significant innovation. Yeah, and I think that's, to me, that makes sense because you're tying together those two kinds of evidence. So in the in the corner where you're the pure disruptor, you're, you've got the evidence of uh, what people want and, you know, what they're going to buy and how the product works. And the other kind of innovation is, is actually changing things and, and making things work in a new and different way. And in the sort of perfect, in the sweet spot there, you, you've got to have both of those things. You're, you're tying your innovation very in great detail to the same thing that the disruptors are. But you've, you know, you've really got some incredible, presumably product innovation going on there rather than market innovation, which I think is, you know, the, the, the disruption side. That sort of pure sweet spot might be quite difficult. It's very difficult. And this has been the problem with value propositions and the study of value propositions is that it really spans all of the different functions of the business. It's very hard to pinpoint and say the reason that this business was successful was because they got together and got on the same page and innovated their value proposition. I can think of an example of a, a company I worked with a couple of years ago where you know, they had a, a big board meeting around strategy. Within the same week, they had a, a marketing team working out their go-to-market plan. They had a product meeting around how they were going to build up the new product and if you think about it the value proposition runs through all three of those things the long-term strategy the product and the go-to-market plan absolutely have to be united and they have to reflect that value and that fit between the product the customer the firm and the market Um, but all three of those processes happen separately because it's difficult to get everyone in the same room at the same time and to bring all of these processes together and I think that's what really struck me when we were discussing this before was was you wrote something down that I always say, which is that there's a benefit in the actual process of doing this itself. So it's not just the fact that you've got your value proposition and that hopefully that's going to improve your ability to direct the business and reach the market and strategize, but just the fact that you've been through this process, you've actually managed to tie those disparate strands together just the mere fact of doing it is going to improve the way that your business understands itself and 
parts of the business talk to each other and I think that that's what I always say about modeling when because I do a lot of work and talking about modeling and what I always say is even if the model you end up with at the end of it is actually not quite as good as you hoped or even potentially useless the mere fact of having been through that process of having to conceive it and put it together and work out what your parameters are and understand your system well enough to be able to model it is of massive benefit and I really get this feeling that this is the same kind of thing you know let's say that you ended up with that value proposition you looked at it and you went yeah well that's not really taken us forward but what has taken you forward is the fact that you you had to go through that process and put people together yeah so I mean I've I've done a I've worked with a tech startup before developing their value proposition and it was a very useful process and I had to engage with, you know, the, the sales team, the product team, the marketing team. I was working with the, the CEO directly and it became very clear to me quite early on that, you know, there were very different visions of, of the company and what it does. And that, that was ex- reflecting in the marketplace as well. You know, it wasn't easy as a customer to really get that compelling message straight away of exactly what the company did. And no wonder, because even the people working within the same four walls had slightly different ideas of what the company was trying to do. Often, you know, when companies hire a consultant to work on their value proposition, they might like the idea that they could pay you, you go off, you come up with it, and then you give it back to them, and then it solves everything. Really, (laughs) it's it's really a case of getting together the best minds in the business, um, spending that time, getting everybody on the same page. And it's... It's actually an ongoing process. You know, the value proposition is not something you come up with, Mm. um, save as a PDF and then never look at again. It's got to change. It's got to react to the market. It's got to shift. You've got to look at it every week or every month and say, is this actually the way we provide value? Is this what we're doing? Is this what we're projecting to people? Mm, I spend a lot of time uh, persuading uh, clients or more often potential clients um, that sometimes don't end up as clients, that they know their business best. And that the one thing that I can do is to come in and help to turn the knowledge that they have of their business into something that they might not have got before. But I can't, you know, it's not a matter of creating it. It's a matter of eliciting it and tying it together. Yeah, companies have the knowledge. Um, And, you know, if you you chat to people, you you know, you can chat to the head of sales for, for a company and he'll say, we should be doing X, Y and Z. And you'll chat to the head of product and he'll say, yeah, we, we should be doing Y, Z and W. And they're pretty much on the same page. They all feel that they know what they should be doing, but somehow it's not quite happening. And I think sometimes as an external consultant or as someone joining in, really you've got to create that call to action and get people on the same page. And it's not about going off and producing some great big report, sending it back and no one ever, ever really acts upon it. And I guess that once you've got that value proposition drafted for the first time, um, people love to disagree with it, right? And and that's that's a yeah. great place to be because once people can see something and work out what they agree about it and what they disagree about it, then, um, you know, they're really talking. So there's one thing that I wanted to cover before we finish, and that's this link to um, other similar kinds of uh, analysis and other kinds of work that maybe aren't done within you know, commercial companies, I work a lot in government, I work a lot with third sector charities. And I was really interested about uh, particularly your quadrant model that showed that you can actually be doing something cheaper and, and not as well. And this balance between uh, how people, I'm, I'm going to try and articulate this uh, absolutely correctly, because it's quite important that yep. there's something about the balance between the value that really exists within the product, there's the perceived value 
of the product that I think is a really important point that those two things can differ and then I think there's also the idea of the cost that goes into that and balancing out the fact that you may be reducing the price of something but you're probably reducing the value in certain areas but if that value doesn't matter to people it doesn't matter there's the idea that you can produce a premium product because people really need the product to be at this level if it's going to be of any use to them whatsoever and that's defining value again and in the analyses that I tend to do um, for government they're called value for money analyses and that definition is absolutely explicit either in commercial world that there's you know the idea of competing on price can be very important but I think what I liked about this was the idea that if you think through your business properly and you go through this process you don't have to be thinking constantly about cutting costs you can be thinking about balancing costs against the value that the customer is going to get and I think that's at the heart of a really good business so I mean I just want to think a little bit more about this difference between uh, about where the perception of value comes from well it's interesting that you're making the point about value for money and i think often products the temptation is to want to include everything feature with marketing it's to want to put the best possible content and events and adverts out there um and it's all about understanding what value you're getting back from things and what people really want Often gaining customer feedback happens too late in the process and it it happens, um, it can be considered quite an expensive process. You know, I think that the Lean Startup offers quite a good sort of view on this in terms of making a minimum viable product, testing it, measuring it, trying it out even with friends, colleagues, your postman, you know, asking them what they think of an app or an idea or a, a slogan and really just getting the customer at the heart of that process. So whilst it may not just be down to the customer to define value, um, and you you know, sometimes you'll have an idea that's so great that people don't realise it yet, mm. um, generally getting customers right at the heart of the development of the product or the service is, is really key to success. The thing that that triggers in my mind is the agile methodology. And the idea that you're running this value proposition. So you said before, this is, you know, this is not something that you produce and put on a shelf. This is something that's a living process, the value proposition. So I like the idea of a living process of a value proposition, you know, working alongside, uh, for example, an agile methodology. It sounds like it could be really, you know, a powerful way of making sure that your product development is always being recognized in your value proposition but at the same time the knowledge that you gain from the value proposition is making sure that your continuing releases and and feedback into the agile methodology is always taking you forward i I think that's a great way of looking at it i think they really tie together but i i read the lean startup quite recently i think i was a bit late to that one but i really saw the value proposition tying in with that this is a pretty big topic. I don't think we've covered it all off, Jack, by a long way. Yeah. But I think that I've, <laughs> I've sort of thought about it a lot more and maybe we'll talk about it more. What we'll do is we'll definitely get the references up on the website. I think people can have a read of it. And then if anybody's got any burning questions, then uh, I'm sure we can always get back together again and hammer them out. So have a look online at the strategyandevidence.com website or search for Jack Hable or myself, Stuart Astill, on LinkedIn to find more information about this topic and much more or to contact either of us. You can seek out other strategy and evidence podcasts on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and all good platforms. Thanks for listening. 